The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we are approaching the time when your son did walk that road to the cross. We're in that season, and I I thank you for the opportunity each day, but especially this morning, to turn our minds towards that and to remember that you sent him as a lamb to become enthroned as Christ the King, the Messiah. There's tremendous irony in that. As a lamb led to slaughter, he becomes the king and opens up a tremendous, wonderful, beautiful kingdom. Thank you for that. This morning, as we think about this king and his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom into which you have invited us. Would you give us minds to think about it properly, to be, to be concerned not to miss it, to value it above all things, to chase it, to be earnest in pursuing it. Give us a mind for that, Lord, and not a mind of presumption. This kingdom and this king is worth everything. And Father God, I thank You for making it real and possible. And I pray that You would this morning use this brief time that we have here to cement it in our minds as important and to, by Your Spirit, draw us into it. Lord, there are some here who, who are strangers to that kingdom, who don't know that King. And I pray that You would work in them to draw them to You. And for us here who do, Spirit of God, would You... Warm us and, and stir us and soften us that we would be so much more attracted to that life lived with you. We're, all, we're coming from all different places. We have all kinds of different variations and shades of need. And I pray, Lord, meet them this morning. Meet us all at once through this passage. Give me words that are clear. Give us ears to hear them. Run through this room now, Lord. And where individuals here, where myself and others here are are caught up or, or snared on sin, would you set us free from that? Even right at this moment, would you move us to repentance? clearing of accounts with you. Move on my brothers and sisters here even at this moment. Descend here on us and make this a holy time, a a set-aside time that you would meet with us. Communicate yourself to us for our great good. You are what we need. So for our great good, would you communicate yourself to us and would you be honored in that? 
lifted up in us, loved more deeply in us, glorified as the church reflects who who and what you mean it to be. Make that happen this morning, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb. Amen. As we return to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, we'll be giving our attention to three verses that we've already glanced at briefly. Last week, in in dealing primarily with verses 1 to 8, we also touched upon verses 9 to 11, and we had to do that because of how the passage is structured. As we saw, Paul is, as moving through this letter, Paul is continuing to deal with problems that are in the church at Corinth, and he's been made made aware of several things and is dealing with them one by one, and And in chapter 5, to kind of catch the flow here, in chapter 5, he faced the issue of a proud church that was tolerating sin in its midst. Sin that should have grieved the church as it did him. And grieved by it, he calls them, commands the church to to face and, and deal with this sin in its midst and to remove it. To remove the sin out of the church. And remember, for redemptive purposes, not as punishment. For redemptive purposes, with with the goal of protecting the church, and it is hoped, verse 5 of chapter 5, that it would result in the salvation of the man who who is caught in this sin himself. It would result in his salvation, and it would protect the church. It's redemptive. Paul's facing a church, though, that doesn't see it like that, and he confronts them on their pride. That's chapter 5. And in chapter 6, he's again aghast at something. A church again self-focused, proud, engaging even in sin, even against people in the church, suing one another, fighting to acquire my own personal rights, even if they're at your expense. It's in the church. Paul's aghast at that. He sees this behavior and says, verse 7, I'm I'm just amazed that you refuse to to give up the things of the world. But verse 8, you even go so far as to wrong brothers or sisters. Do you not know, verse 9, there's the connection to our passage that we're going to look at this morning. Do you not know that the unrighteous, literally those who wrong, won't inherit the kingdom of God? That's how it connects into, so we had to touch on on this section last week, but we didn't go very far into it. So we're going to drill into 9, 10, and 11 a little bit more this morning. And as we do that, I I expect that there there could be a a couple of different reactions in us because the text kind of pushes in a couple of different ways. It pushes in kind of a a warning direction, of, of a confronting direction. And so maybe that will warn or confront you. And then it pushes back in the other way in an, in an encouraging and reminding of what God has done direction. So maybe that will encourage you and, and, and strengthen you and reinforce you. And, and perhaps both, if you link them in the middle with repentance. As is the goal. Paul's not just citing some theology here in 9, 10, 11. He's got, he's got a goal. He sees some things in the church in Corinth and wants them to turn from them. So he warns them and encourages them with the hope that they'll turn and walk as is fitting with what God has done. So that's where we're going this morning in in 9, 10, and 11. But I'm going to begin to read in verse 7 just to get some of the 
the leading in context. So this is 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6. This particular text has two main sections. The first one set off at the beginning and at the end of the beginning of nine, end of ten by by the will not inherit the kingdom of God statements. It's in there twice. And then the second section is verse 11. So the first section is kind of the negative warning and the second section is the encouragement. And before I move on to make a couple of observations, I need to work on the, the list for a little bit in verse 9 and 10. So a list of ten things there. And there are ten because as... The ESV footnote points out the, the phrase at the end of verse 9 is actually a translation from two terms referring to a couple of different things. There, there are ten things in this list and they are the, the illustration of what unrighteousness is. It's not exhaustive. It's just an expansion of the list that was back in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5 verse 10, 11, which itself was an expansion of the list in chapter 5, verse 10. So Paul's just making lists and kind of expanding them. They're not exhaustive, but they are things that he sees in the church in Corinth in some way or another. And the letter touches on them in different ways. So this is, it's illustrative of what unrighteousness is. That, that's obvious. But right here at this point, some have asked, unrighteous according to whom? And to summarize what is a very large discussion, and, and perhaps for some of us this, this is irrelevant, but for some of us it will be very relevant because you have conversations about one thing in particular here. But to summarize a very large discussion, the answer to the question, unrighteous according to whom, kind of comes down to two different answers. On the one hand, some say these things were unrighteous in the eyes of the culture, of the Greek-Roman culture of Corinth, because they were destructive of people and of societies. And that's why Paul condemns them. Follow the little train. The culture looks at this stuff and says, these things, I mean, drunkenness, reviling, wanton sex, they destroy people and they destroy culture. So we're against it. And Paul says, that's right. And he chastises the church for not living up to this healthy society-building ethic. And by and large, that answer is put forward because of the issue of homosexuality. This is, that's the real focus of this debate. 
The phrase at the end of verse 9, which the ESV translates with two separate words, translates from two separate words. The ESV translates it as those who practice homosexuality. There are two words there. Paul calls that unrighteousness and says that such ones will not inherit the kingdom of God, which obviously in our culture today is a big deal. It is. So what do those terms mean? And is Paul's condemnation of them driven by the ancient, unenlightened society's condemnation? Well, the two words that are there, and again, understand that I'm, I'm summarizing a large discussion here. But the two words that are there in Greek and Roman culture could mean, one of them could refer to an effeminate man who is on the passive end of this sort of a relationship. And paired with it, the other word could mean a very aggressive, dominant man on the initiating end of this sort of a relationship. And so those words could be used in context prohibiting male prostitution or the abuse of slave boys. That sort of thing happened and that sort of thing was condemned in certain settings. So that, that could be the way it is. And obviously you can see why the culture would be against that because it's brutal and it's abusive of power. And so the argument then goes, that's why it's destructive and that's why Paul condemns this. This is not describing a mutual, loving relationship of equals. So Paul doesn't condemn that sort of thing. He only condemns some sort of an abusive, one-up, one-down, power exploitation sort of situation. That's, that's the one answer. But surely it is wrong. Most obviously, because the Rabbi Paul, who was just referencing and quoting Deuteronomy three times in the previous chapter, does not draw his ethics and morality from Greek and Roman culture. The Rabbi Paul traces his ethics and morality back through his Jewish roots all the way to the law of God. That's where he gets these things. He doesn't take the, take the temperature or check the wind in Corinth and say, oh, that's what I'll agree with. He traces it all the way back, particularly to the two ways to live in Deuteronomy, the ways of the blessings and the curses. You recall this if you were here when we preached through Deuteronomy. The book is full, the law of God, the, the book is full of, and especially Deuteronomy, the path of blessing and the path of cursing. And the path of blessing and cursing is tied directly to the Ten Commandments themselves. The law of God. That's where Paul looks to find out what is righteous and unrighteous because the law is a reflection of God and His very character. And it never changes. And as for the terminology, it is true. Those two terms could be used for that sort of, a, of an abusive power arrangement. But not only. And in fact, all ten of these terms, either directly themselves are found in the Greek edition of, of the law, or are words that capture longer phrases or sentences that describe unrighteous behavior in the law. All ten of these terms, Paul takes them directly out of his Bible and puts them in this chapter. So we need to be clear on that. He is not only condemning 
one particular thing because the society does. He's swinging at all kinds of different sexuality. He's he's swinging a really big stick here. You've got sexual immorality of all sorts. You have idolaters. You have adulterers. You have men who practice homosexuality in these two different ways. It's a great big swath he's cutting across deviant sexuality. And that includes homosexuality, period. No matter how it's done, it's in the list of unrighteousness. To which we must immediately add, we need to be clear about that, but we must not overemphasize it. There are eight other terms in this list that have nothing to do with homosexuality. Do you get that? Sometimes Christians will hear what I'm saying and will say, Amen! And not realize, ooh, the other eight are about me. <laughs> Two of them aren't, but eight of them are. I mean, look, look through idolaters. Holy smokes. Which one of us is not an idolater? Reviler? Drunkard? Swindler? If you take Jesus' definition of adulterer, So let's not overemphasize two of these terms. While being clear about them, this whole list, Paul pulls this list out and says, this is, here's a way to kind of think about the whole group of them. Lust-driven, reaching out into the world to acquire for myself things that satisfy me and fill me whether they be money or goods or feel-good relationships, it's out there and I'm going to go get it and bring it in here. It's all idolatry. We could say it's all covetousness. But why stop at the Tenth Commandment? We could say it's all some other God before Him. Which is why it's all unrighteousness. Homosexuality, yeah, and all the other stuff. And do not be deceived. Such ones cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Until God acted to change that. That's the passage, a little overview of the passage. And I want to make a couple of different observations. Make one about the first two verses, then one about the the last verse. And again, these are pushing in two different directions, and then I'll summarize them, I I hope, at the end. So, the first observation from 9 and 10, and this this is the warning one where Paul is calling them to righteousness by way of a warning against unrighteousness. Don't be deceived into missing the kingdom of God his first point. Don't be deceived into missing the kingdom of God. That brackets this, the kingdom of God. So, so stop for a minute and think about what is the kingdom of God. If you want some more details about this, I preached on it chapter 4, verse 20. I preached a sermon from Galatians 4 sometime back. You can find those on the internet. But the kingdom of God, very simply, is the the realm in which God reigns as king, in which he rules. 
But what is that like? Well, the Old Testament describes repeatedly God as, as one who reigns with righteousness and justice as the foundation of His throne. One who builds His rule on steadfast love and mercy and goodness through and through. So right off, if you think of the kingdom of God as a realm, within that realm you should say, in there is when God fully comes to reign, in there will be nothing but goodness and perfection and love every which way you can imagine it. And so look out at this world and see every twisting and ruining of that and there won't be any of that there. There will be no more crying and no more tears because there's nothing to be crying about. Nothing but beauty and wholeness and fullness and rest and peace and all of these words. We know them. You've got a religious vocabulary about them, but there actually will be a place where you live with Him that's like that that is almost impossible to imagine because you've never known it. We wouldn't even have a newspaper. I mean, pick up the newspaper and look at all that is from the wreckage of the world. What would be left? I'm not sure. The kingdom of God where God reigns and makes happen goodness. Mm. The kingdom of God should be precious to you. Should long for it. Like a thirsty man in the desert needs something to drink, you should want the kingdom to come. For His will to be done here on earth, just like it is in heaven. And He says in verse 9, Don't you know that the unrighteous won't have that? Which is technically a question, but it's not not seeking information. Like the other two times where he's used it in verses 2 and 3, it's, he's making a statement. He's reminding them of something that they very well know. And there's a warning in this. Catch the feel of this. You might recall from last week that when 7 and 8 use the words wrong as a verb, and we have the word unrighteous in 9 or unrighteous in verse 1, that's all the same root word, just different forms. So he has said in verse 1, you go to the unrighteous instead of the saints. And in verse 8, you unrighteous, verb, the saints. And you well know that the unrighteous miss the kingdom. There's a jab in that. You walk with the ducks. You quack like the ducks. That's what Paul's saying. What am I supposed to make of that, Corinthians? There's a warning here to the church about the church. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if it was to the church about other people? But it's not. It's to the church. He's warning the church. Why? Aren't the church saved people? Sort of. 
in any church, there are at least three categories of people, probably more. In any church, at the church in Corinth, this church right here, and on any given Sunday, there are people, there are Christians who are strong in the Lord. And there are Christians who are wavering and struggling. And there are people who aren't Christians but think they are. There are, of course, people who aren't Christians and know they aren't, etc. But there are at least those three groups of people who would say, we are the people of God. And some of them are strong and resolute in walking after Him. And some of them are struggling. And some of them aren't and don't know it. All three categories. In Corinth, all three categories in this room right now. And every Sunday. There are people in these various categories. And this sort of a warning speaks the same message to each category with really the same goal for each category. A pursuit of righteousness that is a path that ends... Think think of these two aisles here. That at the end of this aisle is the kingdom of God in its fullness. And to each of these three categories... And Paul, Paul is not even present. He has no idea who's receiving it, who's reading it. He has no idea that we would read this. He's just saying, I know these three categories are there, and all three of you come to this path and walk this one. It leads to the kingdom of God in its fullness. Do not walk this path. It doesn't go there. At the end of it is a cliff you will fall off. Get off this path. And it strikes all three groups, ideally with, whoa, you're right which is the means God uses to encourage the strong. You're on the right way. To point out like a flashlight illumining the path, to point out for the wavering, no, the promise of sin is deceitful and it leads me to death and lead them over here. And the one who is a false believer to say, by the grace of God, we would hope, what am I doing? I'm headed to loss and to turn. It says all to all three groups the same thing, turn. Similar to, and I, this is an illustration that I think Spurgeon first used, the warning on a bottle of poison that says, if you drink this, you'll die. That's true for whoever drinks it. There's no theoretical discussion about, are you actually going to be interested in drinking it? It just says on the bottle, don't drink this or you'll die. Don't walk this path. This path of unrighteousness leads to death. This path of righteousness leads to the kingdom. Go this way. Church person. World. Walk the path to life. So, church... Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived into thinking God saves everybody at the end because He's a God of love. And surely I'm lovely enough. Do not be deceived. The path of unrighteousness, a path like this one, leads to death. And do not be deceived, church, into thinking 
I prayed a prayer some time ago. I'm fine. I raised my hand at that crusade. I'm fine. I came forward. My parents are Christians. I've been in this church every day for the last 10 years. I go to school here even. My parents are. I was born into. I've always believed. I've never really remembered a time that I didn't. I certainly agree with. I think Jesus is wonderful. Do not be deceived. Jesus himself said at the end there would be many people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out even demons in your name? And he will say to them, who are you? I don't know you. There is a tr- Do not be deceived. There's a tremendous difference between a profession of faith and faith, which saves. Faith. By grace you have been saved through saying you've been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved on your parents' coattails. Not their faith, yours. Do not be deceived. So I plead with you, church. There is a great, tremendous, wonderful, awesome offer of a kingdom that lies at the end of a path walked, a path of righteousness. Not, carefully, say this very carefully, not that you earn it by walking this path. You walk this path after the heart within you has been changed so that when you hear a warning of death and an offer of life with Christ, you say, that's what I want. Or would you believe? You'd have a changed desire. That's what I want. And the Bible says, pursue it. And you say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Moment by moment by moment by moment. What did Jesus say? How will you know people who have actually been saved? You will know them by their fruit, which is the steps on the path, the changed heart's fruit. So I need to be very, very clear, lest I miscommunicate that somehow you walk a path and behave in a certain way and earn the kingdom. That is false. But the heart that has been changed, when it finds out where the path is, says, that's what I want, and embraces it. And fruit is born in that person's life. Do not be deceived into thinking that a fruitless life is just fine. If you see a fruitless life, you should ask, am I in the faith? Like Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. What's his goal in issuing that warning? To turn us. To say, that's a path I don't want to walk. 
I would, I would turn to this and I would pursue the kingdom of God. That's what I want. That's what I long for. And he would say, that's a good thing because that's what you've been equipped for. Which is the second point, verse 11. Don't be deceived into missing the kingdom of God. And the second observation then turns and pushes the other way in verse 11. And there's a great difference that's there. Remember who you are and what you have coming and act accordingly. Remember who you are and what you have coming and act accordingly. After the warning of 9 and 10, 11 begins... And such were some of you. And the grammar there emphasizes an habitual life. We could say, there's a danger there. There's a danger on this path. This path leads to death. Watch out. Danger. That's the path you used to walk. You don't want anything more to do with that path. You've been changed. It's not that you got drunk once. This habitual thing here. It's not that you got drunk once that you were a drunkard. It's not that you had a, a sexual affair once. It's that that's where you turned regularly. It's not that you one time longed for X. It's that that was where your life was found. A habitual path walking. You've been turned and changed. Made different. You're going to talk about three things. You're going to describe that in three different ways. But you see the habitual nature of it. God, though, did something. You were, he says. Some of you were that. But now you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is a passive thing. God did this. God did this to you, for you. It's not that you washed yourself. You were washed. What are we talking about? Obviously, we're talking about the cross. The cross where God acted to do something remarkable, to remove off of His people their sin and their condemnation and put it onto His Son. Every time we... We move through a particular issue and it looks like we're going to be mired in details. Paul comes back to his main theme, the cross. What God has done to save His people. And so, while the first part of this is a warning, what he, the, we need to note that where he ends, his final step is on not a warning, but an encouragement. That all was, was terrible. There's a great danger there, but that's not who you are anymore. God's done something. At the cross, He sent His own Son to the earth to die to remove off of you sin. And He describes it in these ways. He washed you. You were scrubbed clean. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of our God. I think of this like a washcloth. Think of the Spirit of God as the muscle behind the Jesus washcloth 
that rubs the dirt off of you. So the dirt's on the cloth, not on you. You were washed. All your sin removed off of you. You were as unrighteous as you needed to be, not as you could have been. I mean, we all, we all could be more unrighteous, right? But unrighteous enough that we were condemned. And He wiped that off of us. Made us clean in God's eyes, second term, and He sanctified us. Which is the setting aside of something. A, a taking out from one area and, and making it distinct. In this case, he's describing the process of, got to put these two terms together, washed and, and sanctified. He wipes the sin off of us once and for all and sets us aside to keep wiping the sin off of us day by day by day. Once forgiven, and now he's at work in you. Clean off, clean off, clean off. That should be a good thing if you think about it. God is involved in your life. He hasn't just left you. He's engaged with you to clean you. The things that you struggle with, you need not think of as burdens that I'm enslaved with. And I'll be stuck with forever. He sanctified you. He has set you apart and put you in a realm in which He works on you day by day by day. And because He has washed you and put you in this realm, the third term, He has justified you. Which itself is a legal term, as I've described before. It was a verdict in a court case. The two possible verdicts, condemned and justified, guilty, not guilty. To say that He's justified you says that He has made you not guilty in the eyes of the court of God. Interestingly, it's the same root word as unrighteous and wrong. You were, some of you were, unrighteous, and now He has made you righteous, declared you righteous in His eyes. And if you couldn't get the kingdom of God being unrighteous, righteous now you are heirs of it. You see how these two sections of this, of this chapter push in different directions? The first one, one of warning. Don't walk this path. Walk that one. And the second one, one of ensure, assuring encouragement. He's placed you on this path. The end is yours. And they both have the same goal to make us say, this is the path I want to hold to. And if you're a Corinthian church and you say, Holy smoke, we are, we are far from what we are supposed to be. Oh, the stir in you, a, a grasping of this walk and a, a desire to cleanse out of you all unrighteousness. So, I say these things, I, I walk through the, this, these brief statements about the gospel, what God has done for you in Jesus crucified. By the power of His Spirit at work in you, He's done this. And I know that most of us in this room, you, you, you kind of know this. You're familiar with it. But I just want to ask you, do you believe it? 
And the reason that I want to ask that is, from time to time, I have conversations with folks. And it's always a little different, so I'm kind of compiling many conversations. From time to time, I have conversations with folks who seem to intellectually acknowledge, I have been washed, I have been cleansed, yes, I have been justified, I got it, okay. But Steve, as soon as you or the Bible or somebody else starts talking about anything regarding sin, I get knocked down and I feel the weight of condemnation on me. So I wish you wouldn't do that, sometimes people say. And I just want to push back and say, really? I mean, I know at the first level why you wish I wouldn't do that, but it's not me. I think it's the Bible. But do you really want that? Because part of what makes the beauty of this captivating is the end such were some of you piece of it. The peace about what God has done, though you were that. The peace about what God still does, though you still struggle with that. That should, I think, make God seem awesome in your eyes. And, and there's a knee-jerk reaction sometimes to say, I really can't handle the sin piece. And I want to say, do you really believe the, the love, grace, goodness piece? Do you? That He washed you so that there is therefore now no condemnation on you? None? Do you, really? I know you say yes. What does your heart say? That He is engaged with you moment by moment such that everything that happens in your life is His sanctification on you. Because He has set you aside, sanctified you, set you aside, put you in a realm where He always does good to you, working on you to grow you. Oh yeah, I know that. Really? Do you? That should affect how you look at every hard circumstance in your life then, if you believe it. That you're justified. Righteous in His eyes. An heir, then, of the kingdom of God. Not here yet in its fullness. It's still out there in its fullness. But even now, He has given you a down payment. God Himself living in your heart. And He means for you to fellowship with Him, the Holy Spirit, today, right now, every moment. And part of the sweetness of that fellowship is to go into the presence of God the Holy Spirit with the daily wagon of sin. This is who I really am. Let's not, let's not pretend. And I cannot, I cannot believe that you forgive me for this. But you really do. That it's already all been nailed to the cross. That you want me to bring this here so that you and I, God, can deal with it and remove it out of my life. Really. He does. You don't have to hide it from Him. He knows about it. He's smart, insightful, omniscient. So I, I want to ask you, do you really believe that God loves you? 
that He looks on you fondly, intensely delighted with you. There is a great love affair in the universe, and it is not you and your spouse. Some of you say, I got that. I know that. There is a great love affair in the universe. God with His people. And there is nothing more tragic in all of the universe than the redeemed, loved, secured, protected, blessed heirs of God who live like they aren't. But walk through life as if you are paupers and orphans reaching out to try to acquire from the stuff in the world the things that will fill your heart when you have everything you could possibly need in spades. God is intensely concerned that His people know His fondness for them. And part of the wonder of the fondness is keeping in mind your sin. Not pretending it's not there. But keeping it in mind because then the fondness in the presence of that is all the more stunning. I don't love people when they do those kinds of things to me. He does. Amazing, 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 amazing. And as you work that, your sin in the presence of this God who has washed it and is at work sanctifying you and has declared you righteous in His sight, as you work that, it's something like, stealing an analogy from somebody else, it's something like coming in out of a cold night into a warm house. You're cold when you first step in the door, but degree by degree, moment by moment, you warm up. He does not mean for us. And he gets at this by warning and by reminding. He does not mean for us to pursue the satisfaction of our souls in the junk of the world, but to pursue it in Him. And so he calls us by warning and by encouragement, come walk with me and find me to be your all. I can be. I mean to be. I will be. Trust Him and turn away from self-satisfying, self-securing path of unrighteousness. Trust Him and turn to Him and experience the beauty of His kingship today, tomorrow, and one day forever. Church, do not be deceived, but be encouraged and chase Him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.